Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the newly award-nominated show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Now, Kieran, obviously it's lovely that we've been nominated for the Football Supporters Association Fan Media Award, but it's a public vote. And we're up against the likes of the Anfield Raps, so that's going to take a lot of seasonal adjusting if we're going to win, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to coming six in the five-horse race, actually. <laughs> well, as, as you know, several years ago, I was uh, BAFTA nominated uh, for a writing thing, and I lost to somebody who'd been dead for four decades. So <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't let that disappointment happen again. So we will, between now and the end of February, be throwing in the, the occasional... We're too cool to beg for votes, Kieran, but we'll do the odd ironic mention that, you know, if you want to vote for us, feel free, vote for us in the Football Supporters Association Awards, which <laughs> you'll find the address later on. Now, Kieran, we've got a special episode today because it's it's Questions Day, but later in the episode we will hear from Nick DeMarco, QC, the superstar lawyer who played a major role in the recent decision to scrap the salary cap in League One and League Two. He's known as you know, Kieran, as the Lionel Messi of sports law, which I think makes us the David Luiz of podcasting. So we, we, we look good, but we have the occasional rush of blood to the head. And I, I, was, I was about to have a go at him for calling himself the Lionel Messi of sports laws, but apparently it's not, that's not the moniker he gave himself, Kieran, is it? No, I believe some some uh, football finance bloke described him that way uh, in in one of the uh, newspapers, and, and it stuck. Um, yes. and and if it is if it is going to stick, you know, that's 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 a nickname I'd quite enjoy myself. Well, he's obviously so furious about it because he's got it on his tweet profile. So clearly, <laughs> it's clearly it's. Mind you, we had Max Mayer at Palace, who was the self styled Lionel Messi of German football, and that didn't end particularly well. So let's get on with some questions here while we wait for Nick Demarco QC. And we're both quite uh, intrigued as to whether we call him Nick Q. What do we call him? I don't. I don't know. I think, Just... I think Q's been taken by J- James Bond, isn't it? So. Oh, okay. Okay. We're well, for working on fictional characters, Kieran. Um, right. So our first question comes from Max Bamford. Uh, Max, I'm sure everybody asks you this, but if you are related to Patrick, you could ask him on behalf of many clubs why it's taken him so bleeding long to start playing decent football. But Max Bamford has asked us, uh, what is stopping owners, who presumably own other businesses as well as football clubs, from merging all their companies into one to improve profitability and circumvent FFP? Mike Ashley with Newcastle and Sports Direct, for example. 
Uh, well, well, Mike Ashley has indeed done that. Uh, ah, okay. N- Newcastle United Football Club and Newcastle United and the other uh, two dozen companies, they are all ultimately owned by a company called Mash Holdings, which is uh, stands for Mike Ashley's Special Help something. <laughs> I don't know. I like, I, I Look, know what the M and the A stand for, but I wasn't quite sure what the S and the H. Kieran, um, Kieran, Kieran, seriously, can I just point out here, we're, we're trying to win a, a, a podcast award here, Kieran, that we were asking people to vote for us. We can't have that level of what, what I don't know sort of stuff. Really? It says we've, we've just lost 10 votes here already. Well, well, I'm surprised you didn't go for special handling, knowing you. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, this, this company, Mash Holdings, owns 550 companies all around the world, from the likes wow. of Estonia, the United States, Belgium, you name it. Mike Ashley's got a company there. Um, but you then have to take a look at the Premier League handbook, Now, as you know, it's always a book which is close to my heart, 550 pages of regulations. Um, And and I went into the small print. Um, In terms of trying to uh, circumvent financial fair play, it is the accounts of the club that matter. And the word club with a capital C Uh. is defined in the Premier League handbook. And the the definition says you have to be an association football club. So Mash Holdings, which owns Sports Direct, owns the Frasers Group, owns Evan Cycles, as well as Newcastle United and many other companies, is not an association football club. So therefore, its accounts could not be used to determine financial fair play. And exactly the same is is the case in respect of Stoke City Football Club, which itself is owned by Bet365, Liverpool Football Club, which ultimately is owned by the Fenway Sports Group, and, and so on and so forth. So would those same rules apply to European clubs then, Kieran? Because uh, Barcelona, for example, are not just a football club, are they? They're a sporting club. So do UEFA have a different criteria for FFP here? Well, uh, as far as I can make out, what Barcelona will have to do is to separate out the the football and the non-footballing elements within the accounts and will be assessed on that basis. Right. And when you say Mike Ashley has got these companies all over the world, are they all sports direct? Or has he got a, a, a handle in uh, a, a finger in many different pies? But I'd realise what sort of route I was going down if I said that, Kieran. But. <laughs> um, they are no, they are they are a variety. Some are sports direct. In fact, it's rather weird that every single branch of Sports Direct is set up as a separate company. So you've got one for Scunthorpe, one for Derby, one for oh, Sheffield. Okay. Um, which is a which is unusual. It, it, you know, I'm sure there are benefits to it. Um, and, and Mike is a, is a, you know for for all of his faults, and he's you know he, he's he is a he's a pantomime villain, as, as certainly mm. as far as the, the Newcastle United fan base are concerned, is a very astute guy. Um, and, and he's currently involved in in, in, a, in a very messy legal dispute with uh, with, with Rangers Football Club, which is working its way through the courts. Um, but uh, as well as Sports Direct, remember, he's taken over the House of Fraser, Evan Cycles. He owns brands such as Slazlinger and Donne. You, know, you, 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 oh, well, we, okay. you, you and I are old enough to remember uh, tennis from the 1970s when, when those type of brands were actually quite popular. Um, and uh, you know, the companies then fell into hard times, and, and Mike Ashley is, is the master of snapping these up. 
I have to say, I didn't realise that Mike Ashley was such a global big deal, to be quite honest. I always thought he was, you know, obviously a very good businessman, but kind of just had a couple of businesses, got lucky when he was younger. But clearly, I was wrong, it turns out. No, when it comes to to making money, he's one of those guys who is uh, able to identify value very, very quickly. Um, Mm. And and that's, that's to a certain extent, a skill which cannot be taught in business school. You know, he he backs himself. uh, When he bought Newcastle United Football Club, he did it without doing any due diligence, you know, which would turn the, you know, the, the boys in the city, you know, they'd be reaching for the smelling salts. He says, yeah, I'm going to do it, agreed a price, um, and then then found out what he bought later on. Yeah, he strikes me as a sort of bloke who would use the phrase school of hard knocks. That's where I learned my stuff. Um, Brody Bradford Tom asks our next question. Thank you, Brody, for asking this question. Uh, Brody Bradford Tom said, I was wondering whether football clubs can use hedge accounting in any way to get around FFP regulations. Don't get carried away, Brody. We've all been wondering that. Um, also, to what extent clubs, in particular Spurs, who Brody supports, use special purpose vehicles or SPVs and intellectual property ownership to help players avoid tax? This stems from Brody's own interpretation that Spurs may be using Joe Lewis's residence in the Bahamas to register players' intellectual property in order to pay 0% corporate and income tax. I read it, Kieran. I didn't necessarily understand it, although back in the day I have been in the back of a couple of special purpose vehicles in my time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, When when I first uh, guy said that we had a hedging question, I I thought we were back to our friends at Manscaped. And remember, if you use the code price of football, you'll get 20% off the Manscaped 3.0 Plus yeah, free there's shipping. A, there's another thirty votes down out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Our adverts don't seem to go down particularly well. I think people have been quite traumatized by them. <laughs> I think it's the detail you go into. That's why you go you go way. I was going to say above and beyond in, in your description of it's it's the fact that you so gleefully say no nicks guaranteed no nicks. It's what <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yes. Uh, right, well, anyway, back, back on topic, I guess. Yes, um, carry on. I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, for people unfamiliar with hedging, th- these are the, the terms which are used uh, in uh, in the world of banking and finance. It's things such as options, forex, futures, interest rate swaps, and so on. Um, and, you know, they are far away from, uh, from football as far as th- most of us are concerned. However... Uh, given that football today is big business, if you go into the the Manchester United 2020 accounts, you will find 83 references to hedging in in those accounts. So I, I, I counted every single one. Um, and the way that it works is that uh, if you've got a club such as Manchester United, which is based in the US, but uh, from from a stock exchange point of view, it's borrowed money in dollars, but it publishes its accounts in in the UK. There's a danger uh, that if the uh, exchange rate moves against sterling, uh, Manchester United could end up either paying a lot more interest or uh, having a, you know, much higher debts than they would otherwise like to be. So so you then start to get involved in these in these futures and and options and things of this nature which which uh, you know gets the accountants and the bankers into a sense of high glee. Um so so they, they it does exist in football. Now with, with regards to Brody's question 
then sort of moving on to spurs and special purpose vehicles most players and i think we've had we've had we've this discussion before most players at the elite level will have a, a separate company set up which looks after their intellectual property rights. Hmm. And what the clubs will do is that if you've got a player on 200 grand a week, um, or known as you know, producer guy's uh, weekly st- stipend, um, then um, you're allowed to say that some of that money is being allocated to the player in respect of his intellectual property rights, and the money is therefore paid across to that company. Now, quite often that company will be uh, located overseas. Um, does this mean that the player will not be paying any tax? Uh, I would say, provided all the rules are followed, that won't be the case, hmm. because even if um, the uh, the, the the intellectual property company is based in a tax haven. Um, when when you or I are taxed, Kevin, it, it's based on our worldwide earnings. Who is it? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I still have to look into those. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so as far as HMRC are concerned, it doesn't matter whether the money is paid to, to I think uh, I think Brody mentioned Harry Kane, Um it doesn't matter whether the money is paid to Harry Kane in, in Argentina or, or the Bahamas or Barbados right, or, or right. Jersey or wherever. Um, it, it all comes under the umbrella and then it is taxed as if it has effectively been earned in the UK. Um, yeah, there is such a thing as called double taxation relief. Uh, so if you pay any tax over there, it then gets deducted from what you pay over here. But um, I don't think it's necessarily used as, as a vehicle to... Um, avoid paying tax the the advantages of these these special purpose vehicles is that uh what what you can do is that you you can you can arrange it so that the player doesn't take any money out of these companies until he retires so you know as as if you think about if you if you're a football player on 200 grand a week on the vast majority of your earnings you're paying 45 percent tax Mm. now if the player then goes to retire in the bahamas and he's no longer in the UK, then it could be that um, he could then take the money out of the special purpose vehicle and be taxed at the rate in the Bahamas, which is likely to be lower than the UK. But you know, you know my my view of, of certainly most uh, players uh, brought up in the UK is that they quite like living here, so mm. so it won't necessarily be an advantage. But if you think about it, if if, if you're forty and you're starting to take money out of your your intellectual property company, you're not being paid the same money as you would have been getting at the football club. So therefore, you'll be able to pay tax at lower rates. So is it tax efficient? Yes, it is. Is it tax evasion, which is illegal? No, it isn't. That's the dog letting himself out. (laughs) Even Finley got bored with that. (laughs) Yes, I know. That was very interesting. I did follow it. And thank you for the question, Brad. I'm slightly confused. Okay, I thought the whole point of companies... And individuals registering themselves in the Bahamas or Liechtenstein or whatever was was to pay less tax. And now you're saying that's not necessarily true because HMRC will will tax you as though you you earn the money here. Well, if, if if you're smart, what you will do if you think about a football player, he he's got a career of, mm. of approximately what twelve to fifteen years. 
Yeah. Um, and if, if you are one of these players, what, what you will do is that after you have retired, so, so let's say that Harry Kane's picking up his 200 grand a week, um, HMRC starts to get a bit RC if you take more than 20% out for intellectual property. So let's yeah, say yeah. He's, he's getting 50 grand a week, which is going to his intellectual property company. Then when he retires at the age of, let's say, at the age of 35 or the age of 40, he can then start to take money out. And if you think about it, you know, the first 12 grand a year, I can't remember what the rates are here in the UK anymore. Um, your first 12 grand a year, you pay nothing. Then yeah. you pay some money at 19%. So what he can do is that he can spread the money he's earning over a lower period of time. So yes, he will end up paying tax uh, at a lower rate over a longer period of time. So so there are tax benefits, but there's nothing illegal with it, um, unless you've got a dodgy accountant and lawyer, which, of course, yeah, we, we would never make such assertions. Yeah, what Harry Kane wants is a lawyer who says, no, he only earned £11,000. I'm not entirely sure where you got those numbers from. Um, those references to hedging in the Man United accounts, are they, are they actual references or euphemisms? Because I, I find... As you know, I'm, I, I like horse racing. I don't gamble. Uh, ten pound a week limit, thank you. But um, betting companies tend, yeah, when when there are talk or there is talk of big gambles going on, betting companies tend to be a bit edgy about the f- admitting the fact that they've hedged the bets, they've passed on the liability. So, Man United are quite happy in their accounts to talk about the fact that they've their hedging is is happening. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and and indeed, you've got an obligation to do so. I mean, from from a okay, business point of view, um, it, it really does make sense. If if Manchester United, which you know in in theory is an English company, although it's registered in the Cayman Islands, mm. um, it, it it's looking to to publish accounts in sterling. Now, if if, if sterling takes a hammering uh, against the dollar, you could end up owing an awful lot more money. Um, so what you can do is you can do forward swaps, you can do interest rate swaps and things of this nature, um, which which restrict in exactly the same way as the bookies do. So, so let's say that somebody goes to uh, a bookies and puts £100,000 on the price of football to win the Football Supporters Association Fan Media of the Year Award. Mm-hmm. Bookies might say, well, well okay, well, uh, that's, that's a lot of money. We, you know, presently, those odds are quite high, um, <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly. So what we will do, we'll, we'll take that £100,000 bet and then we will lay that off with other bookies to restrict the worst-case scenario yeah, from yeah, our yeah. point of view. It, it's exactly the same with, right. with interest rates, with currencies and things of that nature uh, in, in the world of business. And, and, the, and the sums involved in these uh, th- these transactions, we are talking trillions mm. of dollars mm. a day. I, I think people are completely unaware as to uh, how, how these organisations are making money, but because it's not interesting, yeah, but mm. but it is very lucrative. Yeah, Kieran, it's your lucky day because not only are we talking to the legal Lionel Messi, but we have several proper accounting questions. And the next one comes from Paul Edwards, and Paul says, recently, Kieran, you explained about impairment being the writing down of the value of a player. But what would happen if a player was bought for, say, £50 million to be amortised by £10 million each for five years, but then got injured in his first game and had to retire? If the full £50 million had to be taken as a cost in one year, how would that be treated for FFP? And presumably there's a double whammy for the club because the team then has to buy a replacement. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh... 
It's tough potatoes, I think, is the technical oh, phrase really? here, oh, as, as far as the club is concerned. Um, it, it is a risk that you take when, when you recruit a player, pay a large sum of money for him. Um, he could, A, uh, get get injured, uh, or B, turn out to be Andy Carroll, um, n- neither of which <laughs> have, have proven to be particularly successful financially. Um, so uh, what will happen under those circumstances in theory is that you would have to write off the whole cost of the player. Let, let's say he has his terrible injury, which, which is tragic on a, on, a, on a personal level. Yeah, and anybody that's ever listened to Dean Ashton talk about uh, his career, he, he's yeah. a player who, who I've always thought he was going to be a, a real find for England. Yeah, it's it's such a tragedy. Um, then uh, the club potentially is going to have to just bear that as a cost. Um, but what it would do is that if they've got an insurance policy, the the write-off would be net of the, the insurance proceeds. Um, for, for FFP purposes, if the club was close to the limit, they could put in an appeal um, to the to the Premier League to say these are uh, extraordinary circumstances, and it, it would be it would be held, you know, heard with, with I suspect a degree of sympathy by the football authorities themselves. Mm. Andy Carroll's actually a very nice young man, and he told us uh, how he was the uh, helpful recipient of some brilliant advice from Kevin Nolan one day. He, he was telling us how difficult it was to go out in Newcastle without being mobbed and it was very very hard for him and he said then one day Kevin Nolan just looked me in the eyes and said don't go out that's he thought, he thought that was the best bit of advice he'd ever <laughs> he'd ever got because we were saying to him well why don't you go out in Sunderland that might help um our next question comes from Jake Arben and Jake Arben's question is about his club Stockport County and their recent logo change um Jake explains it's still the old club crest but it's now in an arty type of circle a la Man City, Brentford, Bristol City and many others. And Jake is curious as to why the new owner has changed it. Is it easier to mass produce and therefore money saving? Uh, if so, surely it affects our brand identity if our logo looks the same as many other clubs, especially Rochdale, which is just down the road. It can't be easier to mass produce because the Stockport Crest is really complicated, whether it's in a circle or not. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Because I, I used to live in Stockport and I used to go to Edgley Park mm. On a, on a Friday night, because it was great. You know, you, you could you could get two matches in yeah. in a weekend, um, and then then I discovered that my my girlfriend at the time didn't appreciate it to the same extent that I did. Um, so so became an, an ex girlfriend um, at, at her behest. I hasten to add, um, which, which meant it was fine. Yeah, you know, I, I consoled myself to going to Edgley Park on a Friday night. I, I just I just love the fact. Some people would say she chucked me. You just said she became an ex girlfriend at her behest. That's a lovely account. It's a lovely accounting euphemism. <laughs> I was binned. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, in, in in terms of this, quite often when when a new owner comes to the club, they're looking at all aspects of trying to increase the the appeal, the awareness, the the profile of the club, and there will be somebody who's you know, they've got a friend in marketing who says, "Well, I've taken a look at your badge. You know, mm, that looks mm. that looks nineteen twenties. Mm. We're now in we're now in twenty twenties. We need to update it." So, uh, if if you take a look at you know organisations such as BT and BP, you know, they they keep changing their their corporate logos 
because they want it to reflect something more modern. So that's normally the driving force. Uh, and I'm sort of inclined along with sort of Jake to think this is, is slightly counterproductive because as football fans, we're actually quite conservative. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I remember when, when Brighton changed its crest. You know, we went from being the Dolphins to the Seagulls, and at the time there, there were lots of you know, lo- lots of men tutting, um, as, as is their their, their way. Um, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of Palace fans tutting as well because it was a shameful rip off of our shameful rip off of Benfica's badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the other reason why it's done is. Um, is is to extend the brand. So if you take a look at Manchester United, for example, uh, the Manchester United uh, crest used to be Manchester United Football Club. It is now Manchester United, i.e. they they want to extend the the Ah, club to being beyond the football club. Yeah, of course. Um, And also it, it could be simpler for registering from an intellectual property point of view overseas where if you've got an existing logo does that count under intellectual property laws in that country and things of this nature so you create a new one you you register it in as many countries as possible and and you try to protect the brand from that point of view now as you know kieran and i are two smooth operators one of us literally because this episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by our below-the-waist grooming partner, Manscaped, which offers the finest tools for your family jewels. Absolutely. And uh, the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0, which is their latest and greatest, includes the Lawnmower 3.0, which is A, is waterproof, so you can play with it in the shower. It's skin-safe, so that's going to reduce the likelihood of nicks on your two best friends. It even has a light which helps you to spot bits that you've perhaps missed otherwise. Mm-hmm. And every lawn, Kevin, needs a bit of TLC. So as well as the lawnmower, you have the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturiser, the Crop Reviver, which is a ball toner spray. And you put all of those together, and that's also going to help unintentional flossing. And on top that we get a travel bag called the shed and a set of boxer briefs which are really good to reduce chafing that's a big package and if you want to be hair free carefree go to manscaped.com and get 20 percent off plus free shipping using the code price of football that's 20 percent off and free shipping with manscaped.com with the code price of football Sussex is not full of dolphins anyway, is it? Not even in the Sea Life Centre or whatever it's that place where the turtles is called. Oh, well, no, we used to have a dolphinarium next to the uh, uh, pier because I used to go there when I was a kid. Oh, um, yes. and, and then it was absolutely tragic. There was some complete bell end that put in too much uh, chlorine or something into the dolphin pool, and it was it was a horrendous story at the time. I, I, it was just just absolutely appalling. So we, we, it's now called a sea life centre, but yeah. uh, they no longer have the the performing dolphins. Quite right too. It's it's just I just confirms everything I think about Brighton being an irresponsible town. If you can't look after dolphins, you don't deserve dolphins, Kieran. Um, I'm inclined to agree. Not that, not that, Carl. I'm, I'm, I'm loath to admit this because it sounds a little bit childish. But you know, in the in the good old days when you could have a day out, and Ellie would say, "Should we? How about we just go to Brighton for the day?" I'd go, "No," because I didn't want to take the risk that you know I was buying fish and chips off a Brighton fan. 
basically. I, I didn't in any way want want to help the local economy in any way, you, shape, you, or form. You're, you're more of a budgie man than dolphin man, I understand. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> My dad has acquired two budgies, yes. <laughs> that's a very long it's a very long story, but they're keeping him happy, although and I quote, I've got a weight on a man and foot. Uh, <laughs> and, if, and he's made the cage more masculine. I'm going around to see the more masculine cage this afternoon. I only saw it on Friday. I dread to think what happens. Anyway, our next question comes from Dominic Kammerman. And it's it's a hypothetical question, Kieran, but I think it's a very interesting hypothetical question. And the way things are going, who knows? It could actually happen. Dominic says, assuming a lender gives a loan to do two different football clubs in the championship, and receives a share pledge as collateral. If both clubs then default on their obligations and the lender makes use of that security to take over the club, whether it's to sell or put into administration or liquidation, would this contradict the principle that the same company cannot own two clubs from the same in the same competition? And how could this be solved? I mean, it it doesn't seem likely at the moment, but I think it is a, a, a clever and interesting question, actually. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a, it's certainly a, a potential issue. Um, the, the rules in, in respect of football clubs is that you cannot own. Uh, I, th- I think there there is there, there are thresholds. I mean, I, I I'm I'm not going to name the clubs, but I actually own shares in, in in a few football clubs in in both England and Scotland because this allows me to uh, gain access to their annual reports earlier than, uh, than I would do under Companies House. Uh, uh, sneaky, sneaky, it's very sneaky. Does, yeah. do, do Companies House know about this, Kieran? Uh, no, they don't need to know. Um, <laughs> You've used that expression before, haven't you? <laughs> I'm from South London. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so the, the threshold that we tend to be looking at is is nine point nine percent. If you own more than nine point nine percent of the shares in in two clubs in the same country or same division, um, then uh, broadly under under football rules, that there is there is an issue. There's 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 a problem mm. uh, because you'll have influence over those clubs, and you know one of those clubs could be going for a Champions League place, relegation, promotion, blah blah blah. Um, so therefore, th- those those are the the thresholds, um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And you've got to give credit to both the Premier League and the EFL for having such thresholds um, to 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 uh, help ensure the, ensure the integrity of the game. If uh, if if you are a lender, um, and, and as Dominic raised, and I think it's, it is it is a, an intriguing issue. Um, if, if both clubs went into administration, what the uh, or rather, if, if, if both clubs uh, had the that the lender call in the loans for whatever reason, um, you would have to be able to set up initially some form of Chinese walls uh, right. to to ensure that there are two different uh, management companies in, in control of the club, and then there would be liaison with the the Premier League and the EFL uh, with a commitment by the the bank or the lender to to sell one of those clubs within an agreed period of time uh, i mean the other alternative is that you know p- potentially you you could get uh, the 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 uh, premier league or the efl to to have uh, appoint di- you know non-executive directors to ensure that as far as decisions are being made that those are being made along the lines of integrity uh, to ensure that no untoward behavior or or preference was given uh, especially when those two clubs were were up against each other uh, you know either directly or indirectly but from the lender's point of view Kieran we've seen 
the Bank of England giving money to a couple of clubs recently. I presume from a lender's point of view, you wouldn't want to lend money to too many football clubs, would you, in case that there was a general sort of collapse in football? And also, if one of the clubs goes under, it could have a knock-on effect on the others that you've lent money to in the first place. So you wouldn't want to put too much money in that one basket, would you, presumably? Well, it, it, it's yes and no, you know, from a lender's point of view, that they're, they're looking to make money. So we, we've seen this company appear from, from nowhere over the course of 12 to 18 months, MSD Holdings, hmm. um, and that's lent to uh, to uh, Southampton, to uh, the owners of Burnley. It's had an arrangement with Sunderland. Uh, it's it's uh, it's lent money to Derby County uh, and so on. So it's so uh, and also there's there's an American so an Australian uh, uh, investment bank which which is doing the same. So uh, it it is theoretically possible. I mean, I, I guess the lenders take the view that first of all they've done their due diligence when it comes to uh, the the ability of of the borrowers to repay, just like all lenders should do if they've got any sense. Mm. Um, and then uh, if, if the worst happens, then they will be able to set up some form of uh, claims of independence in terms of the management. Uh, you know, no, no lenders want want borrowers to go out of business because it's mm. it's it's easy money. You know, what, the, the lenders to Manchester United have, have earned over eight hundred million pounds in interest since the Glazers took over the company, and and they're quite happy for those loans to carry on because. Uh, if you think about it, if, if you're a lender, you've got somebody that's repaying you on a regular basis on the right dates. Uh, it, it's 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 zero hassle. You, you don't have to go and monitor them to the same extent. Uh, they've got they've got a reputation as a good payer. You know, just just collect the check. Mm, I'm not sure I agree with the word earned in that sentence. Uh, received, shall we say? Yes. <laughs> uh, and just as a matter of interest, going in. in I'm, I'm assuming now that you've got shares in, I'm going to guess, 68 clubs. <laughs> How many shares do you need to own before you get access to special information? Is it just one share? or Just, you... just, just one share per club. Simple. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's you, you are a shareholder. You're entitled to uh, attend the, the, the AGM. You're entitled to receive a set of the accounts from the club secretary if, if you apply via an email and, and so on and so forth. I bet. I bet, I bet finance directors would love it just to see the door open just as the meeting starts and Kieran Maguire's <laughs> framed there like Clint Eastwood in a spaghetti western. Um, our next question comes from Debashish uh, Sikdar. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. I was so worried about not pronouncing it right. I probably haven't. Um, and also because I do struggle with SHs in the middle of sentences. But Debashish Sikdar has asked, how do big brands calculate the opportunity costs of buying a club in terms of sponsorship. For example, nation states that advertise Etihad or Qatar Airways won't be able to put their brand on the shirts of Real Madrid or Man United, for example, which would offer a huge platform that they're missing. Is that something that's calculated? Um, I, I, I don't think so. And I think what uh, Debashish is, is inferring here or implying here... Um, uh, he that... implies, you infer, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm... I'm... We both know I failed my English O level in 1978. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's tragic, but you know I don't want you to sound like uh, what's his um, what's his face? Terrible Top Gear man, Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson. Yes, uh, who, who, <laughs> I've never been likened to Jeremy Clarkson. Well, no, I was just about to do, but I don't. I don't want you to become one of those people who like him every year. Exam results come out going, oh, I failed my O levels. Didn't do me any harm, did it? 
So yeah, let's not boast about you failing your O levels, Q. Even though no, you're, I'm, I'm, even I'm though not, you're, it's, it's it's something which bugs me still at well, the age of do, almost you, sixty. You're like Clarkson. You're now a globally successful brand. You know, the only difference is you don't punch people in the face if your thigh's cold. Uh, guy, don't worry about that legally. That's fine. We've we've been through this on many TV shows. He did punch him, and it's because his pie was cold. But I'll leave a gap because Guy's a nervous bloke anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, back to uh, Debashish's issue. Uh, the, the 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 concern here is that if you are uh, United Emirates and you buy Manchester City. It effectively means that you you can't use uh, Manchester United as as a as a advertising platform because clearly there's the, there's a rivalry between the club. Yeah. Um, so that means it's is, is it a lost opportunity? Yes, it is. Uh, but uh, I, I think the the attitude taken by these nation states is that we will generate so much publicity on the pitch through footballing achievement that that will more than replace the the opportunities lost to, to not advertise our brand mm. uh, on on the shirts of rivals so i i i don't see it as as being too much of an issue uh, and given the way that manchester city are playing at present uh, you know, I, I think they've got a a fantastic return on their investment in 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 terms of uh, it, it, it improving the awareness of uh, Etihad uh, as, as a brand, but also you know indirectly, therefore the the the, the acknowledgement that UAE are involved in football. Yeah, it would be nice, Kieran, if we were allowed to talk about just football on this pod sometimes without producer guy getting furious. But because a, a five minute chat about what a good football club Man City are, it's almost hard to believe they're playing the same game as Palace. Sometimes the fact there's a ball involved makes you think. Yeah, I think it probably is football, but. They seem to be doing it a different way than we do it. They're joy to watch, aren't they? They're beautiful. Leo Townsend has our next question. And budding podcast presenters, if there are anybody out there, look out for a masterclass in dealing with a tricky problem when I ask this question. Just, just you, You'll get what I'm getting at. Just take notes if you want, if you want to be a presenter. Leo says, I'm a Shrewsbury fan, but the Wrexham takeover got me thinking, could a club like Shrewsbury or Wrexham, who play in the English League, also own a club that fields a team in the League of Wales. Could there be any financial benefits to this? And could it help avoid academy players being poached by putting them through the Welsh system? Did you know, Kieran, the way I said Shrewsbury and Shrewsbury there? Uh, I, I can see you're a professional presenter, Kevin. Yeah, to I, my you, you, toes, Kieran. To my toes, except I just realised I forgot to look up the FA of Wales attitude. Because I know, I mean, this is a hornet's nest, isn't it? Because if anybody from the Welsh Football Association listening to this will be uh, giving a different answer to the one you possibly give. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas 
into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Um, well, in, I, I estimate that there's absolutely nothing to uh, to have an element of multi-club ownership with one club being based in the realm of the English Football Association and one in the Welsh. Um, because we, we've seen the City Football Group uh, own clubs in Belgium and France, so therefore, yeah, that and of course England, so therefore that, that all comes within UEFA. They, they own clubs elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, so could it happen as far as, as Wales is concerned? Uh, absolutely nothing to stop that. I, I'm not quite sure I, I, I see the benefits in terms of linking to uh, academy players and, and giving them protection, unless it is, uh, and I, I have to apologise here, I've not, I've not looked at the uh, FA of Wales uh, detailed rule book in, in respect of how players can be transferred to English clubs. But I, I suspect there won't be too much protection given that all that will happen is that the English clubs will uh, offer some form of compensation. Uh, and you know, given where Wrexham and Shrewsbury are at present, uh, the, the fees they're going to be commanding for these players aren't likely to be too high. Yeah, how would that? I mean, we've already talked about uh, FFP and multiple businesses, etc. So, presumably, if that did happen, each club would have a different set of accounts. Wouldn't they? the English club and the Welsh club would presumably have to have a different set of accounts for FFP? Then, yeah, yes, they would. Um, and here, there is the scope. I'm not saying this would happen, of course. There, there is the scope to play fast and loose with the numbers. Mm. Uh, you, you can, uh, you, you can centralise certain costs. You can allocate certain costs more to one club than another to ensure that it's within the realms of financial fair play. So, so can this be done? Uh, yes, it can. Is it being done? I, I, I couldn't possibly comment. I'd be interested if there is anybody from the FA of Wales uh, listening to this. I'd be interested to hear what what they think about this as a, a theoretical possibility. Because I know if you talk to fans of Newport, when Newport reformed again, uh, the, the theory was that the FA of Wales would have been much more cooperative if the new Newport had played in Welsh football rather than English football. So I'd be interested to see what, yeah, because if it if it we well, imagine Kieran, if it could be done, it would be done. But on a similar note, our last question comes from Kieran Simmons. Um, and again, this is one of those really simple questions that you think somebody should have asked this before, because um, it's 
quietly very clever. Kieran says, why would an investor not buy a League of Ireland club when there is Champions League football available and three Europa League places? It would cost very little to buy and the return could be massive. Am I missing something? Um, he, no, the, the, the cost of buying the club would uh, certainly be very low. Um, and the, uh, the FAI, the Football Association of Ireland, I think it is fair to say it's in turmoil. And once again, I will recommend the book Champagne Football, mm. uh, which, which has gone into how it was uh, almost destroyed as an entity by the largesse of one individual. Um, but uh, whilst Kieran's right to say that there is the opportunity to get into both the Europa League and Champions League, the money in both of those competitions only arises once you get through to the group stage. And uh, the, the clubs from the FA of Ireland, because Ireland has a uh, fairly low UEFA ranking, they've got no automatic places in the group games. So therefore, you're having to go through potentially three uh, preliminary rounds. Now, the money in the preliminary rounds is worth, in, in the main, somewhere between 230000 and €380,000. So by the time you you buy the club, you then have to get it up to a sufficiently decent standard to get into the the group stage. The group stages of of the uh, Champions League are worth a minimum of 15 million a year. So so it's it's certainly very exciting to get there. But who who have you got to beat? Well, you've got clubs of the stature of of Rangers and Celtic, for example. Mm, mm. So so the Scottish League and and those clubs are, are turning over 50 million pounds a year. Clubs in the clubs in the uh, League of Ireland. Uh, again, let's go back to let's go back to basics. Where do football clubs get their money from? Through the turnstiles, through the TV deal, through the commercial deals. Well, the TV deal is not worth having in Ireland. Um, the the commercial deals are, are mainly local, and uh, the vast majority of, of football fans in Ireland tend to support clubs in the Premier League. You know, they've got huge fan bases for for Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool, and so on. Um, so the, the crowds are, are are solid, but they are are not ticking the dial in, in the same way as as many of the other clubs they'll be competing against in Europe. If if they were guaranteed uh, Champions League places, as far as the group stages were concerned, th- then yes, it would be a no brainer in terms of making that investigate investment because you could get a very nice return. But the the filtration system, which is the preliminary rounds, actually doesn't make it that lucrative. And by the time you've Bought the club, get it up to a decent standard so that it's it's high in the in, in the FAI, um, and then paid the wages. You know, the, the two hundred grand a year you're, you're getting from getting knocked out in the second round by Belarusians Russian mm. r- runners up, which again isn't isn't going to tick the dial in terms of generating a big crowd. Probably doesn't make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Interview time, Kieran. Um, my original introduction to our guest was going to be now. There aren't many famous lawyers, but it turns out historically there are loads of them. Uh, so I looked them up. Sheree um, Blair, Clive Anderson, Abraham Lincoln, loads. Uh, but there definitely aren't many famous football lawyers, and I'm pleased to say we spoke to the cream of that crop, Nick DeMarco QC, fresh from his victory on behalf of the PFA against the League One, League Two salary cap. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. I've deliberately kept the number of questions down because I suspect very few of them will be yes, no answers. But can we start with something that we have been talking about on the pod a lot recently, that successful action to scrap the salary cap? Why did it have to go and were you always confident of the outcome? 
Well, I'm never overconfident about the outcome of any case because all cases have uh, some real risk with them. With this one, I think there's there's two reasons uh, why it had to go. The first is a purely legal answer to your question. Mm. And the reason the case was determined the way it was it is because, as, as some of your listeners may know, the EFL, like the Premier League, has for a long time agreed that there will be, and I'll, I'll quote from the Constitution, which is public, no major changes to the regulations of the leagues affecting a player's terms and conditions of employment without full discussion and agreement in the PFNCC. The PFNCC is the Professional Footballing Negotiating and Consultative Committee. It's a it's a collective bargaining agreement under trade union law. So you had this agreement that the EFL was part of, that they wouldn't change a regulation affecting a player's terms without discussion and agreement in the PFNCC. And so when they started discussing bringing in salary caps, the PFA said, well, obviously, you have to bring this to the PFNCC for agreement. And the EFL said, no, we don't, because effectively, their argument was a salary cap does not affect a player's terms and conditions of employment. Now, you can make of that argument what you will, but you'll see what the independent judicial panel made of it. And that is the reason why the the case, um, the PFA's case won. It was really simply about um, the construction of a contract and trade union law. Um, So that's why it had to go. I, I mean, there are much broader questions about why it should go or shouldn't go that um, various of us have. My, my own opinion is that the, the League One and League Two salary cap was fundamentally flawed because it prevented clubs that could afford to pay higher salaries, um, those salaries, it, at a time when we need more investment in football. It was a sort of rush to the bottom type mm. um, a, a cap, which meant that the the clubs with the lowest income would set it at a level they could afford to stop others competing with them. And and that, uh, that, that doesn't help competition. It's incompatible, in my view, with the pyramid structure of English football. And it doesn't sit well with a system in which clubs are allowed to trade in football players, sell them for the highest price or buy them for whatever they uh, can afford, but then are limited in what they can actually pay them as a salary. So uh, I think for all those reasons, salary caps just don't work in football in the way they might seem to work in a a lot of American sports. Mm. I don't know if you're one for checking your Twitter feed, uh, Nick, but Andy Holt, the owner of Accrington, responded to the outcome with his view that beating the EFL at anything was like taking sweets from a baby. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I respect Mr. Holt because he's put a lot of his own money into Accrington Stanley and they're doing very well. So, you know, he's fully entitled to his opinion. Um, I, I'm not sure how well informed it is because, and it's no criticism of him, he hasn't had the opportunity to read the reasons for the decision, mm-hmm. uh, to, to look at the arguments that EFL, who also had a you know one of the top QCs in the country in sports law arguing for them. Um, they, they, they considered all of those arguments and an independent panel rejected them. So 
um, he hasn't had a chance to to read those reasons because unfortunately the EFL has yet to uh, agree to them being published, despite mm. the fact they're of obviously interest to everybody in football, whatever side of the argument they have. I'm sure if he did read it, he might reach a different view about uh, the EFL and its case. Kieran Maguire, uh, my illustrious partner on this pod, has, has a great nose for a story, but even he only hears of the very few cases that get to a court or tribunal. Are there many others that are being resolved before they reach that far? Yes, there are. I mean, there's the, the truth is that although it's a kind of crude separation, you could probably say that in sport there's two different types of cases. There's a, the commercial private disputes between clubs, which are often made with, in accordance with regulations. So the, the Harvey Elliott case was a, a commercial dispute between two clubs. And then there's a dispute where the regulators on one side, like the Premier League or the FA or whoever. And those regulatory disputes are much more difficult to settle because the regulator will consider it's got a duty to all its stakeholders and clubs to come to a particular result, whereas the commercial disputes are much more likely to settle because you've got just two parties. And usually, I'd say in most cases, there is a, a commercial deal to be done. Yeah, oddly enough, I didn't want to ask you particularly about individual cases, but the Harvey Elliott things is something that our listeners have been referring to for a while. And that was actually, I think you'd say, a very good outcome for Fulham, wasn't it? Well, Fulham have said they're very happy with the outcome, so um, uh, that that's what matters. <laughs> uh, they're the client. I mean, it was a record-breaking award for a 16-year-old player who had never signed a professional contract, and obviously that meant Harvey Elliott was allowed to leave Fulham and join Liverpool without any uh, transfer fee because he was not a contracted player. But Harvey Elliott is a exceptional player. He, he'd been the youngest player to ever play in the Premier League. This season, when he's been on loan to Blackburn, um, he's, I think, the joint high assist in championship goals. Um, and that's for a 17-year-old player at, in one of the most competitive leagues in the world. So um, he is an exceptional player. And the, the reason why this sort of training conversation is important is that clubs like Fulham, invest millions in academies. Fulham's got a very good Category 1, it's called Youth Academy, Mm. that produced Ryan Sessignon and others before Harvey Elliott. And, you know, when when you put in millions and let's say you train 40 people a year or so, young players, you're lucky, you're doing well if you get one star out Mm. of that cohort. And if that one star leaves... And uh, you don't get any money at all for that star. Uh, why are you going to carry on investing in those forty players every year? So it's for the benefit of the game, in, in in my view, that you do have proportionate compensation, and that that does depend on the type of player that's moving. Does a case going to court or arbitration represent a failure of negotiation at a lower level, Nick? Often it does. I mean. Uh, I, Despite appearances, I can tell you that um, I rarely encourage my clients to go to court or arbitration. I, I, I usually tell them that it's very risky. It's very costly. It takes a lot of time. However strong you think your case is, things can go wrong. And if there is a way of dealing with it commercially 
or by a deal with the regulator in some way, um, which there can be before charges are brought, then you should explore that. That's, that's a much better use of your time and resources than paying lawyers. Uh, and, and often that is the case. We often are able to do deals. And so, um, that, that's certainly usually my advice to clients. It's only when it's really impossible that you have to go through and, and fight. Do you have to be a football fan to be a football lawyer, Nick? No, I don't think you have to be a football fan. Uh, it probably helps because it might mean you get more enjoyment. But, you know, I've done cases in in cricket and I can't claim to be a cricket fan, I'm afraid, and, and in, in lots of other sports where I'm not a fan. Um, I think it does help to understand the football industry. You know, I mean, there are lots of pundits out there who understand football, like who's a good winger or whatever, a lot better than I do. I've I've sometimes sat with them at football matches and I'm really impressed at how they read the game. Um, But understanding the football industry, which is a very unique and specific industry, is something that probably is very helpful for a football lawyer. It's it's interesting to hear you say that because I think I know football. I've been around football as a fan and as a pundit and as a broadcaster for many many years. But and and I thought before doing this pod that I understood the football industry as I thought it was kind of a cottage industry writ large. But I realised even after a year with Kieran very patiently explaining to me that I I'm so far from getting a handle on the football industry, and I think that's the case for most football fans, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I think it is because it is such a strange industry and and it is really kind of behind closed doors mm. i mean i i was lucky enough about 15 years ago to be a director at qpr for a short period of time and it was one of the most stressful awful part times of my life because the club had no money it was on the brink of administration all the time and of course the fans are uh, fantastic but they will always blame the owners if something's going wrong f- with the club. So it's it's really stressful and difficult and you don't get paid for being a football director or at least I didn't in those days. But it was the most invaluable learning experience about exactly how the club runs, its finances, the sponsorship deals, dealing with agents, transfers, regulations, mm. all that stuff which you don't really see unless you, you look at it from the inside. Um, and it is uh, mostly... It, as I say, behind closed doors, Kieran, if I can give him a plug, has done a brilliant job with his book because it's the first book uh, I've read that um, actually shines a proper spotlight on how football finances work, which is is really one of the key things now. Yeah, I'm guessing, well, I'm guessing that Kieran will be preening himself as we speak, but um, I'm also guessing, I mean, lawyers have obviously been around football since wealthy men started forming clubs in Victorian times. But for how long has professional football lawyer been a career path? It seems to me that it's a relatively new development, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, I'm not even sure if I would narrow it down to football career paths as opposed to just sports law. Sports law as a whole is is quite new as a uh, as an industry that can actually employ people permanently uh, to do it. Um, and that is a result of the greater commercialization of sport. And of course, football is the sport with the most money in the world. Mm. It's the most popular sport in the world. And English football is economically the most successful 
in the world. So it follows that there will be more work in that sector, perhaps, than any other sports sector. But you still have to realise that it's a relatively small. It gets a lot of headlines and some players' wages are very high. But when you compare the turnover of a Premier League club to other companies, I think I read somewhere, not in Kieran's book, but in someone else's, that uh, a, a big soup Tesco or other brands apply superstore has a similar turnover to a Premier League club. Mm. And Tesco will have hundreds of superstores up and down the country. So it's relative to other parts of our GDP and commerce. It's still a very small sector. Mm. Nick, you may be the Lionel Messi of sports law, but please don't be mentioning other people's books on the pod. <laughs> you, you made you made Kieran so happy two questions ago, and now he's he's, he's all up. What what do you make now? I can't and even I'm, remember who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> probably Swiss Ramble, I guess. Um, I'm going to bring Kieran in on this after this next answer, uh, Nick, if you don't mind. But what do you make of players like Raheem Sterling, who decided recently to ditch agents and instead use lawyers and solicitors for occasional advice? Well, um, I mean, I don't know the the circumstances of that case, so I I can't comment on the case. But um, Raheem is obviously a really highly successful player. Um, He's got a a great deal in terms of his wages. And he's also, I think, very media savvy as Mm. well. And so it doesn't surprise me that someone who's reached the pinnacle he has um, might, might make that decision. And, you know, other players in a similar position might also make that kind of decision. Um, And then you've got players at the other end of the spectrum who perhaps are only ever going to get one small professional contract in their life. And they may not need an agent. But I think for the vast majority of professional players in between, they are going to find it more helpful than not to have a football agent. And I say that for the same reason that I find it more helpful than not to have a clerk, because I want to be able to get on dealing with, you know, advising in law or arguing in arbitrations and not spending all my time arguing with clients about what my rate is or mm. when they're going to pay me or, or, or that kind of thing, because it's just not it's it's not what I'm good at and it's not what I want to do. And I think that's that's the case with most professional footballers as well. Kieran, I presume from Raheem Sterling's point of view, just purely financially, not having a full-time agent would save him some money, would it? Uh, p- potentially. It, it could also be a false economy. If, if you've got somebody working on a full-time basis representing you in terms of your commercial interests, sponsorship and so on, it could be that they manage to sign up for, for, an, for another couple of deals, which actually more than cover their, their fees. Um, in respect of Raheem Sterling, uh, he, he's... He appears to be taking. I don't think the final decision's been made yet. Um, that he he feels that he only needs uh, the, the the guidance and advice of a professional person um, on on set dates and for set set issues, and, and therefore yeah, that sort of formed the basis of his uh, the rationale of his decision. Now, Nick, you, you know, I said earlier in the interview that they wouldn't be yes or no questions. Well, mm. technically, this is one, mm. but feel free to elaborate. Can football actually regulate itself? Do you think? No, I'm going to say I will elaborate because uh, I think that the the financial regulation that we've been speaking about is the best example of the problems with football regulating itself. Uh, I'll, I'll give you you know three examples. First of all, 
the distribution of broadcasting funds and other income between clubs and between leagues. Secondly, the failure of the um, the League One and League Two previous salary cap plans because they were they were not properly monitored and enforced by the Football League that doesn't really have the resources to do so. Thirdly, the failure of financial fair play in the Championship. Um, and fourthly, now, the, the failure of salary caps. When you look at all of those failures, a common theme in them is that often rules are rushed through by majority votes of clubs who are considering their own short-term interests. And in doing so, they're often considering how best to restrain competition from their competitors in the league who might have more money or or, or they're worried about relegation or whatever it is. And they're, they're focused on that and they're voting for rules based on that. And that can often lead to quite irrational rulemaking. And so there is a good argument, particularly on the financial side and also looking at things like fit and proper ownership tests, which are really also a lot to do with the financial side of football, uh, to have an independent regulator looking after that side of things. Um, And I think the collapse of salary caps and the the current COVID crisis in funding will bring a, a new and greater call for that kind of independent regulation now. I would guess fit and proper ownership are four words we get asked about most on this pod in the year and a bit that we've been doing it. Why does it seem beyond the wit of football to come up with proper fixed criterion that illustrate what fit and proper ownership is? Because there are so many cases of people taking over clubs that clearly don't seem to be, to to the ordinary football fan, fit and proper people. Yeah, well, I mean... It's a difficult one because football has come up with criteria of what's uh, what is and what isn't fit and proper. Um, it's just not always either interpreted that criteria um, sensibly or perhaps investigated it into the background of of, of some people. I mean, it's, it, 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 some people seem to get away with no investigations at all. Others seem to have the book thrown at them before they they've even filled out the form and why that is is often difficult to tell because these things are all done behind closed doors again i mean Mm -hmm. it's another thing that concerns me as a sports lawyer it's that the greater transparency you can have in this sector whether it's to do with arbitrations or whether it's to do with these types of decisions the greater transparency the better results you get at the end where things are taken without proper processes and behind closed doors you 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 get these sorts of problems and it's sometimes difficult to explain why you do yeah nick uh, thank you so much for joining us on a sunday morning i i know like us you're relieved to hear it's not being filmed We like to end our interviews, um, Nick, with a couple of light-hearted questions. Although, to be fair, only producer Guy would think this first one is light-hearted. He's interested as a Manchester football fan. The UEFA v Manchester City verdict at at CAS was a split decision. Does that arise often in arbitration, and is it considered unsatisfactory when it does happen? Well, I don't think that's a very light-hearted question either. So I, I agree with you. Like, um, it's um, no, it doesn't happen often. Um, I mean, it can happen. There's nothing wrong with it happening. Um, the rules provide for it in all arbitration tribunals, as they do in courts, where there's a three-person or more panel. 
Um, but it tends to be the case that, and I've, I've sat as an arbitrator in sport often as well, and it's certainly been my practice, what you try and do is get consensus and you talk it through with your fellow wing members until you've got consensus. And so it is quite rare for one person, for example, or a minority to feel that they have to give a, a, a separate judgment. Mm. It is quite rare. All right. Well, these two are definitely lighthearted. Would you make a good football referee? No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, yes and no is probably a better answer. <laughs> I think I would be fair. Um, I strongly believe in fairness, even if it makes you unpopular. And so that's probably a good attribute for a referee. Uh, but I am probably um, not either mentally or physically well-adjusted enough to put up with what a referee <laughs> needs to do. Yeah, I, I referee the what well, used to be the annual North London v South London comedians football match. It's it's a it's a nightmare. These are, <laughs> these, these <laughs> are people I these I know, but these are people I've grown up with. I mean, having to threaten to send Alan Davis off in, in front of a crowd of two hundred, it's shocking. And and the final question, that, um, and this is a, a perennial favourite. Which actor would you like to play you in FFP the movie? FFP the movie. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's on the way. Is it, is it? I mean, I'm assuming this isn't an obscure art house movie, but it's a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, um, it, while Kieran's listening, please don't mention obscure art house movies. It's it's a it's a Hollywood blockbuster. Right. Well, if it's a Hollywood blockbuster, I, I think I'd have to say Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, not not because of his Italian heritage, his looks, or his age, or or anything like that, but but more because you know. He, if you've got to try and make explaining the application of financial accounting standards to the amortization of player registrations look exciting, where else do you go? I mean, look at what he did in Wolf of Wall Street. I think you've just, that's probably Kieran's favourite ever sentence on this podcast. <laughs> uh, and that's a very good place to end it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Nick. It's been fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Well, Kieran, in his own quiet, measured way, I think that was one of the most revealing interviews we've we've done for a long time. It was, it was very interesting, wasn't it? Yes, yes, uh, and you know the fact that Nick was prepared to answer every question we put to him. You know, we, we, he didn't uh, he didn't ask for anything to be edited out or anything of that nature. Um, you could see from the way that he did answer, very, very clear very, very articulate and objective uh, while still wanting to get his measure across. And, mm. and, you know, without wanting to be too much of a hero worship, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. Mm. Um, and, and for me, it was it was just wonderful to, to be actually to, to listen to him, you know, answer our questions um, and show why he is the Lionel Messi of sports law. Yeah, I, I was slightly reluctant to ask the Andy Holt question right at the start in case he thought I was being mischievous, but I'm glad he did because his answer was was very diplomatic but firm, which I liked. I also like a man, Kieran, who already knows the answer to the question of who would play you in FFP the movie. Clearly, clearly he'd been giving that some thought, even though we didn't tell him what the questions were going to be beforehand. Yeah, yeah. And who's going to play your part? Have you, have you worked that out yet? No, 
not quite yet. No, I, I'm not entirely sure I'd even be in. What part would I even be in in FFP, the movie? And working on the basis that I couldn't get a job playing myself on a TV show recently, <laughs> I don't think I'd be in the film of FFP, the movie. I was also very impressed as well, because, and I know I, I could, apart from the fact he praised your book, of course, but transparency was a word he used very often. And I, I thought that was interesting coming from a lawyer, because you wouldn't necessarily expect a lawyer to be arguing for transparency, but clearly in every aspect of the game, he says that's the biggest problem with with football administration, basically a lack of transparency. Yeah, if, if we have transparency and, and openness, it, it means that the number of disputes falls, which which might appear counterintuitive from from the perspective of a sports lawyer, but it but it does mean that you can actually have a set of rules where everybody knows where they stand before they get into an argument. So therefore the the type of cases that are more likely to come to fruition are going to be the ones which which involve less of of the lunacy which we sometimes see mm. in, in respect of these cases. Yeah, although slightly worrying, I think that the answer to the simple question can football actually regulate itself was no. Yeah, that, and and that was pretty unequivocal as well. Yeah, yeah. We finish with a couple more shout-outs to clubs and fans doing very good work in their community. That Millwall podcast asked us to mention the Millwall Lions Food Hub, which is doing great things in south-east London. Happily to do that. And Jonathan Allsop told us about FC United's Food Hub, which has delivered more than 2,500 bags of food, plus other stuff like books, to many households across North Manchester in lockdown. Well done to them. Uh, If you've got any club community project to tell us about it's questions at priceoffootball.com uh, it's questions at priceoffootball.com which is also the address if you have any questions for our next questions pod on any aspect of football or anything you've heard today and meanwhile uh, i shall hand you over to kieran to say goodbye and ask him not to actually beg for votes well thank you first of all thanks for tuning in folks uh if you're enjoying the show please subscribe press that uh that big purple button and if you give us a review if you give us five stars if you're enjoying it and also the feedback we do appreciate it uh but feel free to say whatever you want in the feedback uh, that doesn't impact upon the uh, algorithms that are used by the likes of spotify and apple to determine our place in the charts and uh it's only by getting a decent place up the charts that we can get people of the caliber of Nick DeMarco to come on the show. So, so thanks again and stay safe. The price of football. I'm for the